The following is intended for mature audiences only. Discretion is advised. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dead or Dennis Maller, talk to artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And the artist and entertainer whose day job we're talking about is James P. Connolly. J.P. Connolly, comedian friend in L.A. Wait for it. Pandemic friend, <laughs> J.P. Connolly. Uh, he's a comedian I met through Zoom comedy. He is, yeah, this guy, I'm so glad I got, uh, that I finally had him on. I should have had him on there. J.P. was like, just one of the nicest dudes. Still is. I mean, he didn't get less nice after the pandemic. But that was, he was just a good dude to hang around with. Like, I miss pre-Zoom shows, hang out with certain people and just, riffing and joking and having fun. And JP is one of them. And our, our friendship started about just hanging out in the zoom rooms. And he's, you know, very polite and cordial and this, and then just me addressing him. was like, what's up, James, what's going on? And bringing up things and talking about and, and just joking around and could not be a nicer guy. Uh, and to know that he was a Marine and that he fought in desert shore. Sorry, not the second Iraq war, not the one in Afghanistan, that one. 19, early 19, like Bush Sr.'s Iraq war, which blew my mind. Like I knew he was a soldier. I knew he fought in a war, but I didn't think it was that one. I didn't think it was that long ago, but it was great having him on. And for those who are just joining us, thank you so much for being a part of this. If you're here because you wanted to find out what this podcast is about or because one of my guests were on the podcast and you wanted to listen to them, thank you for being here. All that I ask. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review. iTunes, Google, anywhere that you listen to this podcast, leave a review. You might not think it matters, but it does. It helps the algorithm. It doesn't help me. It helps my guests. It puts it in more and more people's ears around there when you put those, uh, when you put these podcast recommendations down, when you subscribe, when you tell a friend, and when you leave a comment on your favorite place to listen to podcasts. So if you can do that, if you enjoyed the podcast, I would appreciate it. I already appreciate you being here. I hate to ask you for one more thing, but all it costs you is just a few minutes of your time. I'm going to give you as much entertainment as I can on here. In fact, James is going to be the one doing all the entertainment, not me. He is a great comedian and he has wonderful stories of joining the Marines, figuring out how to do comedy for the first time, his journey into comedy, doing television, his first time doing television and his journey to comedy is a series of wonderful stories. And I really feel honored that he was able to tell me all of those stories here. And I am glad that you guys are going to listen to it as well. So please put your hands together. Put your hands together. When have I ever said that in the podcast? If you're listening to the first time, I've never told anybody to applaud on the podcast. But please, I would love it if you all enjoyed my conversation with Marine and comedian James P. Connolly. During the pandemic, that poor kid was like locked in the bedroom and we were, because at the time, I don't know, I know I met you during that time, but at the time I was just separated from his mom. So I moved from my beautiful 1600 square foot home that I own into a 400 square foot apartment and had my son half the time. So we were like on top of each other sharing a bedroom and there was no air conditioning in the, in the thing. So it would get so humid and I'd have shows and I'd take over the living room, which was the biggest room in the house. And I would ban him to the bedroom and he would sit there with his laptop and snacks on the bed, just sweating. 
And just, but he was so good, he would stay quiet. I'm like, but if you come out and sit on the couch, if you say something, it's fair game. I have to like address the heckler in the room. So he would sit there. So after the Zoom shows, like with you, I'd go in there and he'd be like, is it done, Dad? And he's just like, poor his sweat. I'm sorry, buddy. I just like, I feel so, people are like, like, oh, James is so funny, but he's got his son held hostage in the room next to him. (laughs) And he's just, he's just so sweaty. But he was so supportive. And, uh, you know, it was just like, it was just so bad. I'm running like the tethered Ethernet to me and I'm screwing over his video games. It was just, you know. I love this. We're already getting the background of of your your Zoom comedy days. That the amount of time, the amount of inappropriate things I've said while your kid was just sitting in the background quietly listening and pouring down sweat. You know, the only time he came on camera was you know one time we did the show at Flappers with Evan Cossey, and Evan was TikTok very popular at the time, and I was just you know casually mentioning to my son, you know, blah blah blah, and he's like Evan. And they're like, do you want to meet him? So Evan, it was a young guy. I go, hey, Evan, my son's kind of a fan. And he was so, I remember bringing him around and the two of them, it was adorable because my son was like, hey. And Evan's like, wow, how you doing? And I'm like, I feel like I brought generations together with TikTok. So. Oh, that's so adorable. Because <laughs> I know Evan's like not used to that, like eat with Evan on TikTok. He's not used to that, like fan interaction. People no, no. Him. He's just a, just a nice Normal, like, everyday dude. He was a guy who was, he, like, both of them had that look of, like, awkwardness. And I was like, oh, this is so cute because my son really, you know, and then afterwards went straight to his phone and watched every single Eat With Evan, you know, video that was ever, ever made. So, solid. There's always a story behind Zoom, Dennis. There's always, like, (laughs) shit going on back here. Uh, Yeah, The most I got going on around me in my Zoom days was my own private studio. Yeah, my dog sitting under my feet. That's basically what I had going on in the background. It was very chill down here for me. <laughs> well, that depends on what your dog was doing sitting down there. I guess that really matters. At that Waiting point. for me to stop there so I could yeah. take her on a walk. There we go. There you go. No, we, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a champ. But, I mean, you know, he didn't, you know, it's just like sometimes I felt so badly. I was just like, sorry, buddy. You know, dad's unemployed, but the only employment he has is to take over 300 of the 400 square foot. So you got two options. You can... You can sit for inappropriately a long amount of time in the bathroom, or you can go to the bedroom and sweat. And the, and the windows opened to an alley in Long Beach. So if you open the window to get air, it was like the smell of all the garbage cans in the alley. So that's how good. <laughs> on top of it. That's how good. That's how good. A, that's how good a father I am to my son. <laughs> Dad's career matters. Dad's career matters. So. Well, uh, how was the uh, Zoom learning for your son during the pandemic? Uh, you know what? He actually did really well. He was, um, there were moments, but you know, the part thing about doing Zoom in a 400 square foot house and having your dad be a former Marine is I hear the teachers give the rules of the class and I'm in the other room and you know, he'll say, well, you don't really have to do that. And I go, uh, actually, I heard your teacher clearly. And what your teacher said was, <laughs> so I didn't, I was able to, to really be a part of the process because he was literally like he was 10 feet from me around the corner in the kitchen. And we set him up in the kitchen because it was had sunlight and he would sit at the table, which was you know, like a bistro table for two. And uh, I'd be in the living room again, 10 feet away around the corner. So he was able to, uh, you know, he's personable, he's, he's articulate and he's smart. So he was able to like, 
express through the camera. And then also he was helping these poor teachers who just had no technical <laughs> skills. And you'd hear that, you know, they would ask questions and, and my son would raise his hand and go, I think you need to just go to the drop down menu and do the thing. And he would like give them <laughs> tech advice. So I was really proud of him. Um, you know, we set, we had a whiteboard and we'd set uh, school goals and, and I would, you know, weigh in on stuff and we'd make a time schedule every morning so that he didn't lose his, he and both and I, we didn't lose our minds. We knew, you know, we'd do this and then we'd walk to the beach 10 minutes away. We'd come back and we, so he was a, he was a champ. And then uh, when it went into the next phase, you know, I just, he tried to do the off camera thing. And I said, buddy, I'm right here. Camera on, looking at the camera. I'm the, you'll be the student who's always paying attention to the teacher. You're not the guy who gets to, you know, cause some of these kids would just shut down and then you'd hear, he had one where his buddy, didn't realize his camera was on and his buddy's little brother comes back and starts screaming and swearing at his brother. And, you know, we're just here. Everybody's like, and so it was just awesome. That was awesome. I love that during the pandemic, your son has to play tech support during the day for teachers and then tech support slash stage manager for you during yeah. comedy at night. He had a very busy life. Uh, we made room for video games and stuff in the middle. We went to the beach a lot, but yeah, my son was tech support for zoom. And then he was, uh, you know, stage manager did all quiet on the set. We're going live in three, two, go to your bedroom. <laughs> so, but I always told him, I said, listen, you're welcome to come out. But I said, you can't attempt to disrupt me at my job or I will do my job. And I don't want, I don't need a crying kid. 10 feet from me in there. So. <laughs> I do love the loud sigh that he started the show with. Like as soon as you mentioned, he just went, oh, here's dad talking <laughs> about me again. He popped his head up. He's uh, he is no little boy anymore. That kid is, he's 12. He's five, six, one thirty, And he's just well, he, like, he, he grew. Like I heard that sigh and that I could feel his eye roll. He eye rolls and sighs on a college level. He is He's very a grown, advanced. Grown ass man, eye rolling and sighing. Very supportive though. Very supportive. He gave me a big hug and he's like, Go get him, Dad. I go, Well, I'm just gonna be talking about myself. It's not really go get him. It's not only really I don't need <laughs> this is not a motivational speech. But I will tell you this though, Dennis. So we I took him. We had a summer vacation, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do. So I took him to Boston, right? Took him to see uh, Fenway Park, see the Red Sox play the Yankees. Uh, he wanted to see, I said, well, you want to see baseball, baseball? There's only one place to go. Got to go to Fenway. And we saw them, you know, I think they crushed the Yankees 15 to 5. There's like a weeping woman next to me. The bases were low. She goes, it'd be great to see a Grand Slam. And then Red Sox hit a Grand Slam. So it's just great. But we did a duck tour while we were there. Oh, you did. We who, did. Who we had uh, Charlie Chowderhead. Oh, Dave McDonough, another stand-up comedian friend of mine. Yeah, he was great. Charlie is great. And we uh, we had like limited days on the ground, and he wanted to see Boston. I said, well, the best, fastest way is to just take the duck tour. and Because I'd never done it. I used to go to school out there. I lived out there. Like, I'd never done it. I've seen it. but uh, So it was a lot of fun. Charlie Chowderhead, solid man, did a great job. And uh, Oh, Dave is great. Dave is one of the reasons why I'm also part of the Duck Doors. Like mostly uh, Matt Count and Michael Bryan, who are also stand up comedians. Yeah. Like, now, us, we're stand up comedians, or we're quickly infiltrating the Boston Duck Tours company. Like two guys, you know, one guy started it, and then he kind of brought two or three other guys in, mm -hmm. and now he's brought three other of us came in this season. And so right now, there's like, uh, there's Mike, there's Matt, there's Dave, there's me, Dana. Yeah, 
right now there's six like official Boston comedians involved. With, and there's a couple other people that are comedians. Like they do, you know, like the, yeah, like, yeah, they're doing, I, I mean, saw they do legit shows. No, but, I know, yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, they're not a part of the scene. Yeah, yeah. They're like doing like the, the road gigs at like firehouse halls and stuff like right, that. Right. You know, they're not part of the scene, but they're doing these things. And, you know, they're amazingly talented people and they're great narrators and, and whatnot, but they're not like part of the comedy scene. Like right, right. the six of us kind of are like yeah. name wise and stuff. And we're just going to, we're just going to get every, every, you know, Boston comedian who doesn't want to hold down a day job anymore and want to talk about what in their, their native Dude. accent. <laughs> but this is the best part is I loved it. You could tell he was, uh, he had skills because I, my origin story, my superhero origin story was I was in San Diego Started out hosting uh, mobile disc jockey karaoke shows. That's how I started. Um, and now was this pre before the or after the Marine? Right after the Marine Corps, I was okay. I was just getting out, and I knew I wanted to do stand up comedy, but I didn't know how to start. So my sister was living in San Diego at the time, and I'm like, "Look, I'm going to drop my buddy off. He's going to law school." And I said, I need to find a job somewhere loosely affiliated. What's, get me in the pocket of like entertaining. So she was living in San Diego. She had there was a one ad for a company looking for mobile disc jockey karaoke hosts, and it was um, it was like Thorn EMI Entertainment was trying to do a nationwide mobile disc jockey karaoke type thing. So they were buying up local uh, mobile entertainment companies. So we were getting paid like this was early '90s, and I'm making twenty five dollars an hour. Um, which was phenomenal. So you had to go in and you had to audition. So I auditioned. Once she got the interview, I went in and auditioned, got the gig. So I started out in San Diego, right out of the Marine Corps, you know, hosting uh, karaoke shows, just, you know, people coming up to me wanting to sing Stairway to Heaven. And I'm like, oh, sorry, the disc is skipped again. I'm sorry, we can't do that. Uh, you want to sing? Oh, you want to sing? You want to sing this nine minute song? <laughs> you want to sing The Rose? Oh, that was scratched too. I don't seem to have that one ready to go. So I did that, and then I was there for a year and a half, but I wanted to do stand-up. So went up to L.A. visit some friends, and I read, like, the drama log in the Backstage West at the time, and they had an audition for Universal Studios tour guide, and I said, all right, I'm going to go up and audition, and if I get that, then I'll move to L.A., and I'll do stand-up. So I went up there, like a brutal, I don't know what you guys have to do, duck tour, but that's why my heart went up to Charlie Chowdhury. I said, I know this process. It was like a two-week process, elimination and then you get to your final, I don't know what you guys, we had a final uh, on the Universal Studios tour guide in which you're out there, you're all sitting on the tour, you're going around Universal Studios, and then at any moment, they just go, it's you. And you got to get up, and you got to pick up the tour in that moment. And we also had to show stalling skills. Like in the, in the middle of your tour, it's like, hey, uh, we're stuck. Fill time. And you had to fill time with more Universal Studios knowledge. Like, you couldn't just do your thing. You had to, like, go. So it was a lot of people, three-week audition process, I think it was, and a lot of people just froze on game day and then didn't get the gig. So. Oh, wow. So they're making you do the tour as an as the audition. Yeah. Your, your final moment is oh. you got to do it when you're thrown up. They're going to make you stall and make sh shit up. And if you can't pass that, so you could make it through every single day. Imagine going through a duck tour, a two-week process, whittle down, and then they do the final day tour, and you just don't bring it home that day. And they go, "Sorry, Dennis, we, you know, you're not duck tour quality. You need to, to go home." Wow, that's brutal. Duck tours was intense, but it was not brutal. It, they were. It was much more coddling. Yeah, like we'll get you there no matter what. We'll get you there. Like 
Uh, our, my training was, I started March 15th training. The audition process was like basically improv games. Yeah. And then I'm like, all right, cool. We like you. Three months later, we start, you know, the auditions are in December. We start in March. Right. We train, I trained from March 15th to to May 17th. May 17th is when I got the go ahead to go start right. doing tours. And we do have the similar thing where it's like, hey, bridge is going up. We're stuck behind a drawbridge. Yeah, yeah. We got <laughs> yeah, 10 exactly. minutes of extra time to talk yeah. about. And luckily we can divulge a little bit, but it, yeah. you know, and, and, and go off history a little bit but a lot of stuff still has to go back to history but that is brutal well, here's this is the, well let me ask you this yeah. when you were doing your things like were you all contestants in the same tour thing together yeah we were all sitting on the tram as the tram people you'd get called up to your thing and you'd see your well, here's the question yeah. i have about that is because i notice this a lot like we would sit in groups and do tours together yeah. and you would notice certain people picking up certain things from other people. Like I just started saying things and then watching guys like I called the BU data science building. They built this to prove that science works. And then I watched everybody else just start saying, yeah. this is b- built to prove that yeah. science works somehow. And it's like kind of stealing material uh, while we're training. It's like that, that is not a fact. I made up so many fake things to see people just regurgitate those fake things back to me. So yeah, we didn't. Similar things happen that in the tour where well, we're like, hey, wait a second. That's my little piece of universal history. Well, you know what? Because during the process, addition process, I mean, it was just you were so nervous because you realized you could not get the job. But um, uh, I wish it was more like yours. Like, hey, we like you. You're going to work with you. They set this up more like welcome to Hollywood. Suck it up, kid. Show business is tough. <laughs> and even though we're going to pay you at the time five freaking dollars an hour, you're going to go through the grinder. Oh. The guy driving the, the damn tram was a union guy making five times. The guy selling churros that I would drive by was making more money than me. But I had, you know, that was the, the thrill of being a star. And they would tell you, you know who else used to be a Universal Studios tour? And they would name, you know, some star. And you're like, yeah, but I'm pretty sure that this wasn't the a launch pad for their career. I'm pretty sure that. So what I did, and I would get in trouble for it, once you get the gig, um, I, being a big Elvis fan, uh, there was one movie that he shot at Universal Studios, this last movie, Change Your Habit with Mary Tyler Moore, and it wasn't part of any approved script. But if I was doing the tour, I would absolutely include the, the whatever Elvis trivia that I was. And so I got a note. <laughs> I was I was going off script. And so so I was a little irked. And so we had this sponsor at the time, Texaco, right? Texaco was sponsoring the trams and and they were giving us this um you know, we had to include this stuff and I was like, for the love of God, this is insane. So my former rebellion uh was to I said, You want me to say Texaco, you know what? I'm going to say Texaco so many damn times during this tour. It is ad nauseum. <laughs> so every time I would I would do this, and I'd be like, and by the way, this is brought to you by Texaco, star of the American road. And I would do that non-freaking-stop. And that was my form of rebellion. I got another note, but this time it was a good note. Say, we really love the way you're incorporating Texaco <laughs> into the tour. Like, I suck at rebellion. So... <laughs> But what I did do one time is that what blew me, I don't know about you, like we got like, there was people that would rent out Universal Studios for private events. Some guy was throwing a bar mitzvah for his son and rented out part of the back lot. And we had to give tour. Wow. I was like, so it's a private party. Like a dad shot at the time, like dropping 60, 70 grand. 
And so I'm one of the tour guides, 13 year old kids who, quite frankly, could give a crap about that. You over here is where the Western blah, blah, blah. So I was losing, I was losing the crowd. I was losing these kids' attention. And so we would stop in the Western town. And now the Western town building universe studios, um, they're like fake walls. They could like, crash into them and stuff. So in order to get the attention of my tram, when we stopped there, I violated, I got out of the tram. And I, I ran through my body up against the Western buildings, and which the kids loved, and I got my attention. But again, I was I was not supposed to leave the tram to uh, use. Like you can't like jump in the water and swim with Bruce the Shark of Jaws. You gotta you can't do that stuff. So. You can't you can't walk where Moses part of the Red Sea yourself. You're not supposed to do that. So, but but that's why whenever I do these play, I have such great affinity. Or the tour guide who can actually do the tour and not sound like they're repeating a script and they'd rather put a gun in their head. So I really, Charlie Chowderhead, my son and I had a great time. Uh, he did ask a couple of questions, which I had, had I raised my hand, I knew he would have involved me in it. So I'm sorry, Charlie, but I did not raise my hand about anything. Because <laughs> Parker looks at me, my son's like, hey, where he go? if I raise my hand, son, I know how this works. I'm part of the tour. And if that guy gets stuck, he's coming back to me. And I'm like, so I, I, I'm just going to listen and laugh and be a good participant, but I will not, I will not raise my hand because we got stuck in traffic. He did a great job. The whole time I'm thinking, nope, he'd keep talking to me, asking me questions. And I'd want to help, but I, I, we didn't do it. So good stuff, though, man. Yeah. Well, you've definitely been a, an audience member at an open mic of all comedians. Yeah. And somebody tries to do crowd work with another comedian. You're like, James, I know you. You know me. Stop. Doing this. So, uh, Dennis, where are you from? Where are you from? What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> nice shirt. Is this a date? Is this a date? <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. I couldn't do that to you, so. So I was listening, and like, and I know, you know, I knew you were military service. I knew you, you were part of the, you know, the war. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was the recent Iraq war. Were you in the first Iraq war? Yeah, see, that's the thing is I'm, I'm old school, buddy. I'm a Desert Storm veteran. And I didn't realize well, you were a desert. I thought you were the reason. Well, I thought you were Bush Jr.'s Iraq no, War. No, no, Bush no, no, Jr.'s no. Iraq I'm OG. War. So, and it's funny because people, when I tell them that on stage, I joke about it the other night. Like the young people, they look at me. A lot of them don't even remember what the desert storm. It's such a small in, in comparison to what's going on. So I joke about it. On, I used to give them a little history lesson about desert storm, which is always kind of funny. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm old school. I'm the original. When I was in... Like, I went to college on a Marine Corps scholarship. The Marine Corps paid for college. And there was a lot of people doing that. And, you know, America hadn't been in an armed conflict since Vietnam. So the idea of being in the military and you might have to do something, like, no one. No one. It, it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And then as soon as I got out, as soon as I got in, <laughs> immediately I find myself in Panama over Thanksgiving doing jungle training at the Jungle Operations Center. And, you know, all of a sudden we get called in at night and they're giving us uh, operations in the jungle at night with kind of loose rules of engagement and live ammunition. And I'm like, hey, can, I ask, can I ask a question? It was, pre- it was prepping for the invasion of Panama to go get Noriega. So, so we're there at night. You know, all of a sudden you're dropping in. Now you forget, like, if I didn't realize this was like live ammo and people wanted to shoot us, it would have been kind of exciting. Because we would go from, and we'd go screaming over the top of the Panama Canal, like, you know, 15 feet above the canal at night. And you're just like, this, if this was a tour, this would be fantastic. And you're screaming. And then we had to jump out of helicopters into the jungle. And, you know, you're going through the jungle at night with night vision goggles. 
and you know you're just listening well the key is triple canopy jungle so it's extremely dense and it's just like you see the type of creatures in there that you see on tv that you just don't ever want to see in person and then when you see them you're like oh god just don't touch me <laughs> like i lay down one time took a little nap on the jungle and you wake up and and i look down and i see on my leg you know all the ants that march with all the stuff on their back they were marching <laughs> over my leg, between my leg, over my leg, and the other side. And you're like, holy crap. And I'm like, please don't be in my leg. So, and then the jungle, and there, there are spiders there, Dennis, size of my hand, size of my freaking hand. At least, Jesus. at least that's what my emotional memory was. And I remember one time you're going through the jungle and I'm, I'm the lieutenant. I'm in charge. The Marine Corps, the lieutenant leads by example. You don't send your men, you show the men. So I got the machete. I took my turn up front. And we're hacking through the jungle, and you're looking at everybody every now and then. No talking, right? It's all hand signals, and you're just very manly. And I'm cutting through the jungle, and I remember cutting through and turning, looking at my men. And when I turned and looked back, I was like this far from a giant spider web and a spider right here. The biggest thing I've ever seen, the little mandibles moving. And it took everything I had not to just scream like a small child because I wanted to, but I'm going, you're an officer of Marines. You're leading men in the jungle. There cannot be, you cannot, there's no screaming here. <laughs> so I just kind of like. There's no screaming in the Marines. So very quietly, I just kind of was like. And then I just kind of looked at my men very calmly like, watch out for that spider. Let's go this way. <laughs> no. <laughs> inside your oh, dude, your Shaggy inside, from Scooby-Doo. Oh. Outside your John Wayne. <laughs> I just was like, I was shaking. I thought that thing touched my face. I just would run. I would have abandoned my men and run. So we were there and, you know, we had some interactions with the Panamanian Defense Forces. And then, you know, you get back and you're like, all right, that was a close call, not a big deal. And then, you know, we went to Okinawa for six months to train. And then when you train out there, you're, you know, you're working in the jungle again. And But it's training. But that's where the Marine Corps puts their units that are like, if anything happens, it's the unit at Okinawa. You get all the stuff you need. You're fully loaded. So I remember landing from Okinawa. There were six months. We landed in the United States. And I picked up the newspaper that day. It happened to be, I think, August 1st, 1990. And the headline was, Hussein invades Kuwait. And I remember looking to my buddy, and this is the words I said, not our problem, and I tossed the newspaper. And, <laughs> and I went home. This is where the Arrested this Development, is, this is where you hear his voice is like, Little did he know yeah, this, it was going to be yeah. his problem. So I go home, you know, we're getting back and we're, we had all our stuff still loaded up in pallets from being in Okinawa and you come home the next day or a day or two, you go back to work and you're just getting ready to like take some time off and assimilate back into home and you get called in and you get told, hey, by the way, uh, we're not offloading the pallets. We're going to get your affairs in order. We're going to the desert to train for a month and then we're shipping out. And we're just like, uh, okay. So we went, put together your last will and testament, get yourself together, go train at 29 Palms with live ammunition, which is a little more alarming than regular training. And uh, and then we shipped out. And so we're gone for like, I think we were gone for like 14 months in total. And so, and then, you know, so by the time I got back, I was like, okay, been everywhere, done a lot of stuff. Um, I was satisfied with my participation <laughs> and that I wanted to, you know, come out and pursue stand-up comedy. So, yeah, the government got their money's worth out of me. 
So you got you joined the military in the eighties, and I I'm a kid of the eighties. Like mm. I thought we were closer in age. It sounds like you're a little bit older than I thought. Like I'm forty two. I thought you were late forties. You're a little bit you know, older than fi- that. Fifty seven. Fifty seven. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I didn't know you were that much older than me because. I'm moisturized. You look great. I'm, I'm moisturized. Look, yeah. yeah. And this is actually my go. hair. This is like people ask me, <laughs> I don't dye my hair. My beard betrays my age, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't judge people, but like beards yeah. go gray very early. Exactly. Yeah. Like, but, uh, you know, so when, like when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, there was GI bill, use the military, yeah. go to college, pay for college. Let's um, uh, join uncle Sam, let him pay for your college. Yeah. That sounds very much similar why you joined the military, it sounds like. Yeah, they, uh, and I, you know, I joined, I was going to go, like my parents had, you know, we had three kids and both parents working and they were struggling with how they're going to pay for college for everybody. And they were going to take a second mortgage on the home. And, and um, you know, and I was, my dad was in the Marines. And so I thought, you know, I, I was always open to military service. And um, so I started looking up about maybe going to one of the academies. That way my parents wouldn't have to pay for college. So I could pay for my own college and then. So I was looking at West Point, looking at uh, Annapolis. And, and then I, at junior year in high school, there was an award ceremony. I was getting some award for some. I was getting some award for something I did. And this guy got on stage, and he was getting a Navy ROTC scholarship. And I asked him, so what is a Navy ROTC? And he explained to me, you get the scholarship, and then you go to the school of your choice. And I was like, so I looked it up. And if you do that, it's one less year commitment than an academy. And I'm like, okay, well, if I get the scholarship... I can go to a college. They'll pay for college. I only have to pay back four years instead of five years after an academy. And that way my parents don't have to pay for my college and I serve the country, blah, blah, blah. So then I started looking up the list of colleges. And I'm like, oh, my God, Like there's some damn good colleges that I could never afford to. So I first got the scholarship. I actually started out with a Navy scholarship because I, I didn't think I had what it takes to be a Marine. My dad was a Marine. Two of his brothers are Marines. There's stories of like, bar fights and eye gouging. I'm like, ah, I'm not an eye gouging bar fighter. I'm like, I'm like, I was like, ah, I think I'm stubborn, a little tough, but I'm not a, I'm not a, so then the guy, so I stuck my thumb in his eye and I'm like, I'm not that guy. So, um, so I was Navy when I started and then, but I looked at the list of, and the list of colleges was amazing. I thought, well, damn, if I get the scholar, I got the scholarships. I said, well, what the hell? Apply to every college you want to go to because the, it's paid for. So I, uh, I applied to Harvard and to the greatest shock, Harvard said yes. <laughs> so uh, that's how I ended up in Boston. So I went to Harvard on a Marine Corps scholarship. And then uh, we would do our military obligations at MIT. So I actually took classes at MIT and Harvard. Uh, and never had to stick my thumb in a man's eye during college. <laughs> never never had to pull a gun on a guy. So, uh, so yeah. And then from there, I went into... Um, Went into the Marine Corps as soon as I got out there. So, uh, but you know, we had a lot of military commitments in college, and we had to do ROTC stuff in the morning at MIT, and then you know we have your own student battalion like they do in the academies. And senior year, I was like the commander of the battalion, and so I was like, you know, I had, I had job. I played rugby in college. I had a job as a security guard at night. I had the commanding officer of the ROTC battalion. I still had to pass my freaking classes at Harvard. Like I didn't sleep. I was tapped out. I was enjoying myself, but I was like. You know, this has got to give. So I was actually looking. This is how bad it was. I was looking forward to the Marine Corps because then I only had to do one thing. I actually, <laughs> Marine. when I be a Marine, I could do that and I'm good to go. But this whole student athlete work to pay for stuff, commanding on like second job. And then it was just, yeah, it was, it was tough senior year. It was pretty tough. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Well, and also 
you know, you're in Cambridge, Boston. Uh, loved it, the, man. The loved 90s, it. which was so different than it is 30 years later now where, where it's at now. Um, Dude, no. I was there when Doug Flutie threw the pass to Gerard Phelan, the big the bomb. I was there when Larry Bird and the Magic. I was there. I'm a Laker fan, and I had to exist in Boston, Massachusetts, which I will tell you as a sports fan, let me tell you how horrible. I would go to bars. Fortunately, the Lakers, you know, won a little bit more. But uh, go to bars, and they'd play each other. And every time Larry Bird would score, the freaking bartender would ring that damn bell. You know how many times I heard that bell? Because Larry Bird would score. And I went to the Garden one time uh, to see my buddies. Cousin was in marketing for the Boston Guard. For some reason, he wasn't using his floor tickets when the Lakers came to town. So we were like four rows off the floor. And it was the the Celtics had a 48-game home winning streak. Lakers come to town and end it. End it. Now, I'm probably one of two visible Laker fans in the Guard. Uh, Containing my joy, because it's just really a, a, a scary moment. But it was so fun. To see that, it was great to be there when I was there because of uh, Celtics and Lakers. It was awesome. And, you know, the Patriots were in the Super Bowl, but they got destroyed by the Bears. So all my friends watching that one, uh, they were hammered by halftime and went home. It was just unbearable, unbearable <laughs> to the men. Well, when you came back, or I, and I knew you were here a couple months ago because Brian Kiley was coming on the podcast at the same time. Yeah, yeah. The Boston Comedy Festival. and. I wanted to hit you up when you were in town. But my schedule just didn't work out. Like we were Brian so and I end up recording remotely because I didn't have time to go see him yeah. and just hang out with well, him. That's right. I was, he was also feeling under the weather yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And like right around the same time that you were out here and, and whatnot. So like do you even recognize the Boston that it was when you were a kid to the Boston now? Because even on the tour, I I'm not from here. I'm from Baltimore. I've lived here for ten yeah. years. So it's always been this to me. Like I can remember the Seaport District mm-hmm. being nothing to yeah. what it's built out now in the past 10 years. But, to, you know, the city has changed so much for you that lived here. How, like, when you take your son around, you're like, hey, there used to be this thing here. And no longer yeah. is that kind of memory lane stuff for you? Kind of. I mean, I've been back and forth doing gigs uh, over the years. So I've kind of seen it, you know, every couple of years I get back. So it's not a, you know, actually Harvard itself is, you know, very few of the haunts that I would go, the late night 24-hour burgers. I mean, it was just like, you know. So there's a few things I can still show them, but that's changed a lot. Uh, but, you know, Boston to me, I mean, the fact that the garden is gone, that was shock to my system. I'm glad I got to go. I saw a hockey game and Celtics there. Uh, but it hasn't changed too much for me because I don't, I don't, you know. Well, the old garden had like something like 110 obstructed seats where they put seats right yeah. behind a column that was holding the building up. And you had to pay for the, the seat wasn't free. It was a seat that you paid half price for to stare at a giant steel column holding. I know, but it was the garden you wanted to go. I mean, I should talk. I sat on the floor. I, I was spoiled, but uh, I, you know, I said my son loved it too. You know, we went. He was he was introduced to the Boston accent. My dad had it, but this guy, like you know, we were sitting, we we're in East Boston, going to get lunch, just walking through, and uh, we went to this little deli, and it's just you know. He'd never experienced this. I had to get, when I was there, like people yelling over the counter. Like, you, there's no line. It's not, you don't step forward. People just screaming. <laughs> and I remember going to a place in Cambridge and all my friends in New York, like, let me tell you something, you can't, you just have to yell. And if you hear them yell back, they got your sandwich order. And I was like, what do you get? You go over there, pops down over there. I was like, 
So I'm in the first time. So, you know, we're in there. Same thing. We're in line. And this guy just walks in really loud. Hey, yeah. Uh, what do you got back there? She goes, uh, oh, we got chicken palm. Chicken palm, huh? Chicken palm. All right. Chicken parmesan. I love that. Just love the accent. <laughs> yeah. Until you're with a woman when you hear the accent, and then you're just like, it's immediately turned off. Like, ah, ah, fuck me harder. Come on. Uh, it, it's, it's a harsher. It's a harsher. Yeah. I'd say that. It's, yeah. Yeah. And trust me, I'm from Baltimore. So we also don't have a great accent either. Like the Baltimore accent, like we all sound like this. We're going to go up Blair Road there, Juan, and get ourselves a zinc to wash our yeah. clothes in this with water. Like it's all accents yeah. can, you know, have endearing and terrible qualities. Exactly. All the same. They draw you in and they repulse you simultaneously. <laughs> so when you, uh, you were talking about during the pandemic, mm-hmm. you had a giant uh, dry erase board with timing and scheduling. Yeah. Do you think, were you always like scheduled and on time like and organized like that? Or was that a product of being in the military? No, that was a product of actually being a comic because when I first started being a comedian, you know, I don't know about you. I just like, I'd never had an open schedule like this. I'd never been the one responsible for setting the timetable. Like you did stuff. You went to school, you're in the military. So I was, I mean, I look back and you think you're have all this freedom and you're using your time, but I just was really not good at doing the things I needed to do and convincing myself that I was using my time. And I really got good at it when I got married and had a kid because then it's like, okay, but here's the reality. You don't have time anymore. So you better get good at using the time you have or you don't get to be a comedian anymore. So then I had to get really good at using time because it's other people need your time. And so that probably helped me more than anything in the pandemic, realizing, okay, my son needs a frame of reference because he's untethered during this day. I need a frame of reference because I'm untethered during this time. And uh, at this, that was the time I was separated from his mom going through a divorce. So emotionally, I needed a schedule. <laughs> I needed to know what was going on. So I would say it's more of a life thing for me. But because uh, I struggled, I've been doing this forever. And I was, you know, and I'm pretty disciplined as a human. But I was pretty bad at, at really looking back. God, I had so much time to do stuff that I could have used in a way. But, uh, yeah, I see a lot of comics struggle with that. You know, I try to counsel them and go, listen, man, a life untethered where you create priorities, you decide what's important, and you got to be honest with yourself, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And you got to figure it out, and you got to figure out the way it works for you. And then don't beat yourself up about it when you screw it up. Just do it better tomorrow because it doesn't ever get any easier. It just gets different, you know. And as my life, yeah, my life changes now, I'm still – you know, I'm still teaching myself the same things I taught myself 30 years ago was, hey, you know, you don't have any shows in the next five days. You got a lot of less stuff going on. Maybe you should just take the time to write for an hour every day without agenda, just to connect your brain to the comedy every day. So it just moves it along. And I'm like, ah, oh, it made me happy. And I said, yeah, you idiot, you've been doing this forever. You should know this by now. But I still have to sit down and go, yeah, maybe I'll just write some jokes today. Maybe I'll do that. Well, all right, let's go back to your early days of comedy. You were a DJ. You wanted to do stand-up comedy. You moved to L.A. You started, you know. Tour guide, baby. As, as a tour guide. What made you, what, in, I started comedy in the early 2000s when I got to high school, mm-hmm. doing it here and there, really just yeah. asking friends, finding open mics, yeah. and, you know, I did open mics, like, two a year. It wasn't until I was <laughs> wow. in my late 20s. Putting your foot on the accelerator. It wasn't yeah. until I was in my late, tw- late 20s when you can find these things online yeah. more often. And that, like, my catalyst to finally taking stand-up mm-hmm. comedy seri- serious was I got fired from a job, right. and I decided that I needed to take 
you know, I was working in radio yeah. and I needed to take my entertainment career in my own hands now instead of being dependent upon mm-hmm. a company. And I went, dove first fit in, in, in stand-up comedy. In 1990, 91, how were you finding where the comedy, like how did you, you said earlier you didn't know how to be a comedian. How did you find out how to be a comedian in the early 90s? Yeah, it was kind of, a, it was a, it was kind of a open wild west to me. Like I, when I was in the Marine Corps. Because yeah, this is also to like, to paint the picture of the time frame. This is right after the comedy bubble. Everything was crashing in front of me as I started. I was, yeah. so I'm in the Marine Corps. You know, I'd always done stuff in college in front of people, not like acting and stuff, but we did all kinds of stunts and public stuff and lip sync contests and stuff. And so um, in the Marine Corps, I was known, I was about as much of a smart ass as you could be and still maintain the dignity of being a Marine officer. And so we'd have these dinners and stuff and they would always have me MC. In our unit, we had a kangaroo court of officers where we would have these secret meetings and I was elected the judge of the kangaroo court. I had authority over all officers except the colonel. And uh, <laughs> we would bring charges against each other for stupidity and action over the course of the year. And, and you know, so there were rules and I had complete authority over these people. And um, we had truth serum, which was prune juice and tequila, which I would administer if I thought you weren't telling me the truth. So, <laughs> so it was, it was debauchery, fun, abusive, the things that we would you know, imagine a bunch of drunk Marines, what we'd accuse each other of. And it was just really fun. So, you know, I... When I was in the Desert Storm, my colonel came to me because we had a bunch of reserve officers attached to us. And reserve officers have regular jobs, they weekend warrior. Now they're being mobilized. So he wanted to bond everybody together. So they called me and they asked me. He asked me if I would write him jokes. He wanted to roast everyone. And so I'd like, you know, a couple days. No, he asked me, but it's not asked. When a colonel makes a request, it's, I was given a legal, <laughs> I was given a legal order to bring funny to my boss. So I had a couple of days and I, I, you know, I was going to be, he was going to say it. So I was able to take shots at superior officers that I could never say it in public. So I, I handed him the jokes. I had some of my buddies help me. And then um, they called me in before the dinner and I was like, Oh crap, I must have crossed the line. You know, Colonel needs to see you. It's never a good thing. And I went in there thinking like, I just, you know, and he was sitting on the couch and he asked me, he goes, well, I, I need, how did you see this joke being delivered? And I was like, Oh, Okay, so I <laughs> I demonstrated some of the jokes to him. So he went up, great public speaker. He killed. He just killed. And the stink eye I was getting from people who knew damn well where that joke came from. So I said, okay, if I survive the war, I'm gonna be I'm gonna do comedy because I had to do it under the gun and it worked. And I'm like, all right. So under a literal literally, under literally, a literal I gun. think I'm the only comedy origin story who was given a legal order during a war to produce jokes for a colonel <laughs> and then have the people that received those jokes have legal authority to come back and not blow back on me. So when I hear people were oh, cancel culture, I had people who had the legal authority <laughs> to hurt me and torture me because they didn't like what I said. So I have no sympathy for your feelings. OK. I had a guy knock on my door to re- basically read me the riot act, telling me he didn't appreciate it. He got all over my shit. So I was like, he jacked me up. He was pissed. So then <laughs> but my boss heard about it, who outranked this guy. And he dragged that guy back in front of me and told him that Lieutenant Connolly was speaking with my authority. And if you have any problem with this and you come to me, but you leave him alone. And I was like, <laughs> so... 
So my boss had my back. He said, no, no, you don't come back. That was done under the rules that were fair. So, so when I got out, I decided that I was going to do this. And that's why I was searching for a way to begin. I didn't know how to begin. There was no, you know, structure. Comedy classes hadn't, it kind of, I never heard of them at the time. I didn't know what to do. I just, my sister, you know, did plays and was a singer. And so I just wanted, my only thought was do something that puts you near. Something that forces you into the pocket. Because I'm a really responsible individual. And I knew that if responsible Jim got a job, then creative Jim would die. He would never come out. I would never let him come out. So I, I only want a job that pushed creative me out into the limelight. That's why I did mobile DJ because I was paid 25 bucks an hour. Uh, that's why I got a job at Universal Studios because I needed that. And when I was broke, I promised myself that you will never hire out responsible organized Jim ever. No one gets to him because he will, he will dominate you. And so now, and I knew, but I'll use him for my benefit, my career. So, but then at some point I got to a place like, okay, these two guys can now live side by side. I just knew in me it wasn't possible. Now it's fun. I could do that now if I had to. If I want to, I'll get a job. It doesn't bother me in the least. But uh, early on, I'm like, nope, too responsible, too much pressure. You're just going to want to do a good job and you're going to like the money and you're never going to start. So uh, that's why I did the mobile to shock karaoke. I can carry a tune, not a singer, but if you put me out there, I'll do it. And, um, uh, I ruined many people's night at Benihana. Um, <laughs> I have, you know, because when you're not singing, your job is to sing to motivate people. And um, this was my nightmare scenario happened very early on. So I get the gig as a mobile disc jockey karaoke host in the San Diego area. And, of course, my boss, being a businessman, knew that I just got out of the Marine Corps. and He's looking at the Camp Pendleton thinking, what a lucrative business target that would be if we could get Jim to go back and do a show there. And I'm like, I left that place a decorated officer of Marines with combat experience. And you're asking me to go back in front of the same Marines and go, hey, anybody want to sing the Beatles? Like I, it was the most, I was like, I can't do it. And so they leaned on me. So they had a gig in, in like Camp Pendleton, some formal type dinner. And they wanted me to do it, and I agreed to it. And I'm like, this is the most humiliating thing I can think of, is to walk out there and have people. And in that room was my best friend from college. And great Marine. And we're a little competitive, because he was the poster child for the mm -hmm. Marine Corps. Like, you know, he took up a shirt, and you're like, all right, screw you. Put that back on. You know, you'd, he just looked fantastic. <laughs> you know, I had tiny love handles I had to get rid of. He had a V. He had, he just, you know, if you looked at him, you go, Marine, you look at me, you go, get out of the way. You're ruining the picture. This guy's a man. <laughs> so he was in the audience. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to put his foot on my neck. He's going to watch me die. He is going to just relish in my misery. And when nobody was singing and it was awkward as hell and he's not a singer, my buddy stood up, signed up to sing with me and jumped in. And I looked at him until the day I die. That was the greatest thing anyone's ever done for me because he did it and then someone else did it. And I was like, man, you could have buried me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been angry at you. But instead, you put your arm around me and said, all right, I'll sing with you. And uh, so, yeah, so that's how uh, I started there and then did that for a year and a half. And then just, you know, they had a, a, a bridal shower 
these convention centers, not bridal shower, bridal show, you know, where they, they have all these things in the runways. And so they needed a host. And apparently the company I worked for had this guy that did it. He was their host, but he couldn't do it. So they asked around the country, is there anyone else who could do it? And my boss was like, hey, I think my guy could do it. So I filled in for him. And they had, you gave a script and you have a co-host. And, you know, she was very Disney perky. And I'm looking at this, Dennis, and I'm thinking, I want to do some jokes. And they specifically tell me, don't do jokes. Stay on script. <laughs> so uh, well, we know how well being rebellious worked out for you the last time. Let's see if you that can can do the rebellion the right. Well, no, I rebel. This just it was taken the wrong way. <laughs> so I, like the good comic I am, I wrote three, four jokes. And so before the show, I'm back and I'm pacing. I'm a pacer. I'm a pacer when I'm happy. I'm a pacer when I'm stressed. I was pacing head down. And they're like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" I said, "No, I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine." I'm just pacing and pacing, and I get up there. And so I come out, and instead of saying the script, I opened with my four jokes. And they all worked. People laughed. <laughs> and I remember in my head, I'm looking at this girl. She's looking at me like, what? that's not in the script. And I'm looking at her thinking, I will never see you again. I'll never be here again. I will never, ever do this again. <laughs> I'm like, my jokes worked. So... That's when I went to L.A., and that's when I started looking how to get up to L.A., and that's when I... So the Marine Corps gave me the motivation to try, and then that form of rebellion uh, gave me the motivation then to leave after a year and a half in San Diego and just say, you got to go to L.A., and you got to start. Um, so Universal Studios, too. Where did you first start doing comedy in L.A.? Where was the first place? Because you, you work a lot of clubs yeah. uh, uh, throughout it, and you're you're doing corporate stuff, so you're like... You're, 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 you're not in one zone. Like we both know there's v different regions of comedy. There, there's TV guys, there's clubs, there's corporate. I have always been a utility guy. I've always been someone who assimilates and can be plugged in and it's good and it's bad, but there's nothing I've done that I haven't been able to do. Some things I'm better fit for, obviously, but I'm very fortunate that I've done, you know, clubs and colleges and casinos and corporates and TV and all that stuff, radio, because I'm, I'm, I'm very pliable. Um, but, um, you know, getting to Universal Studios and doing that. And then I also read it. I saw there was a class that was stand-up comedy class. And I know me. If I tell people that I'm going to do something publicly, then I do it. That's how I dangled the carrot in front of me. So it was a, uh, a class taught by Sandy Shore, Mitzi Shore's daughter at the comedy store. <laughs> and it was the first time she taught a class. It was a six-week class at UCLA Extension. So I thought, you know what? Take the class. You said you just got to start somewhere. Take the class. So I took the class and um, told people I was going to do it. Told them when the graduation show was in the original room. I told all my friends so that way I would do it. And, uh, you know, in these classes, you're supposed to, the goal is to craft three minutes of material, right, over eight weeks. Well, I'm new. I'm like, Every class was just an opportunity to do three new minutes to me. I didn't craft shit. <laughs> I like I did I did three new minutes every week, and they always told me not to do it. And then I even did three new minutes on my graduation show. <laughs> and I look back and I go, "Well, you kind of missed the point of the class." But um, but they let me host the show in the original room because I was pretty naturally confident in front of people. So I got to host. I think the first half of the show in the OR and. Uh, it was awesome because, you know, your first experience was a supportive environment with people who came to watch you succeed. And then my second set was in this shitty little bar. 
at the open mic scene, all confident, full of excitement. And there's the old, a very, very oh, well told story. Oh my God. A lot of people Dude. have had a similar And then you story. go and you're feeling good about yourself because you know you got, at least I, I write three new minutes every week. And you go and it was a bar show and the restaurant's in the back and there's like four guys at the bar, four of them not really paying attention to what's going on. We got the old host who looks like a, a Catskills comic hosting the show in this miserable little bar. And he's up there bombing, just telling the guys at the bar, well, you know, I'm not doing my A material because this isn't really room for my A. I'm like, what the hell is A? But like, he's just telling them this. <laughs> Bring it up, we're dying one after the other. They're not paying attention. People in the back are eating, visibly annoyed that there's a comedy show at the bar. And before I get up, the host finally gets angry at the guys at the bar. You know, this is a comedy show. You're not even paying attention, telling them they need to turn around. Well, you know what they did instead, Dennis? They left. <laughs> they left of course so that I get brought up my first experience was an open mic with no audience but a couple of comics and I could see the people behind them visibly upset that we were still there while they ate dinner and I drove home that day and I thought what the hell have I done what have I done what have I done so I had a couple open mic experiences and then I uh, saw an ad again in the drama log variety. You see, I was always looking for like, I need help. There's got to be something in here in the drama. Backstage was save me now. So I found this uh, ad. There was a stand-up comedy troupe that was forming in the Valley. And I was like, stand-up comedy troupe? And I was like, okay. So I auditioned for that. And uh, I got in. And it was a group of uh, a husband and wife team who had been doing stand-up comedy in the 70s and 80s. And now they did some producing, but they were... Basically, they wanted to create a troupe so that you could, a place to grow your act, right? Come and learn comedy and practice with other comics in a small theater. So I did that for several years, kind of learning some, how to build the set, how to write a joke, uh, how to refine stuff. And I, but I kind of created a, a character. I started doing it, a character is what came out of me. And so, so, but then I left and started, then I started hitting the open mic scenes. As the character. But now I'm doing it three, four years. I have an act. I got seven minutes. It's good. It's a solid. So then people started liking it. It was different. People started booking me. I started to get into clubs. You know, so I was able to grow with this character. Fun to do. Um, and so that's how I started the unknown around L.A. was this act as I did. Uh, so it, it was uh, my starting point was, you know, some classes, some horrible experiences uh, the troupe, mm -hmm. and then stepping out into the L.A. comedy scene. But at least I had, I knew I had seven, eight good minutes. It was just learning how to do it over and over again in shitty situations. Yeah, you have, clearly by listening to the story, what a lot of people unfortunately don't have when they start comedy or even when they continue their comedy career is self-awareness. Eh, I have it now. I'm, you're talking to this guy <laughs> who's reflecting back <laughs> with self-awareness. So I, I thank you, but the self-awareness... You know, a little bit then, a lot more now. Well, you had a little bit of it then. A lot of people don't have that ever. So, like, you know, you, you, that's the thing, like, that some people have trouble with is finding where to start. And they just go, where do I start? They just ask people, mm -hmm. how do I get into this? What do I do? None of them actually go out and do the, you know, the, do the thing that they, they don't search out and find the thing like you did. You went out there and you found a home to start doing comedy. You found, the open mics you found. Because I didn't, I didn't know where to go. Where, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you didn't know where to go. You had to search them. Yeah. Some people just wait till somebody tells them where they go. 
you had that at least enough awareness to go do that. Now, granted, yeah. you've made also a similar mistakes a lot of people make with the brand new. Like, I'm going to do new material every time. Well, I was 28 when I started, too. I was 28. So I was, like, already a grown man compared to a lot of comics who are, like, starting out and their parents are still paying their rent. And I'm like, who are you? I I make crap money. My parents aren't helping me. I'm way more angry at this point than they are. So working through, when did you, uh, how did, because I knew you did VH1 back in the day. You hosted a show with VH1. Where did did you go from stand-up comedian doing open mics working with vh1 what was that how did that opportunity so uh you know started to do this act and with this comedy troupe and then the the husband wife barb and steve north managed me at the time because they were pitching a show somebody loved the show idea and they said we'll sign your best comedian and let's go so they came to me and so i was like all right you know so at the same time other things happened so we just started working together because opportunities were coming and they you know, they had experience. They know what they were doing in terms of dealing with other people coming to me for these type of things. So I started to, um, my career started with uh, one of the guys in the troupe I was in. They left and they were trying to you know, shake things up in L.A. So they were doing an industry showcase <laughs> night. And it sounds great, right? Industry showcase, because people just picture like the power. If you know comedy, industry showcase is your friends doing a show, hoping that someone... Will show up. That's from the industry. <laughs> At best, you get textile exporting industry, but you don't get the entertainment industry. So, <laughs> we, it was in the basement of Luna Park, and you know, you make at the time pre-internet, you make a flyer, you're mailing it around to all the people, you get all the addresses. It was a really humbling experience, and you go there, and you know what? It was pretty mediocre, and uh, you could clearly see this place wasn't hopping with industry, but they're friends of mine, and we're trying to so see you do your set, right? Um, so like a week later, um, my manager gets a call from a casting department who sent an underling to the showcase and they liked me and they wanted to put me on the Jerry Lewis telephone. I was like, I'm like, and that was a big deal in the nineties. Still big. And and I was like, I'm like, everyone. Yeah. So I was like, I grew up watching. I'm like from that show. There was a casting person <laughs> from Eddie Foy Casting. And so the underling brings it to him. He loves me. He called my manager. So I'm like, so all of a sudden, I'm another, for the first time in a long time, they were doing the Jerry Lewis telephone comedy at, at the improv in Hollywood. So I went from the basement of Luna Park begrudgingly to, we want to put you on the Jerry Lewis telephone. We're taping it live at the Hollywood improv. And, you know, Norm Crosby's there. So I show up to Hollywood. I've never been to Hollywood Improv before. I show up. All the other comics are people that you know, right? They had a couple spots for new people like me. So I get there and the table, there's a table with Bud Friedman, Norm Crosby's hosting, old school comedian. All the comedians that I knew from the 50s and 60s are sitting at Bud Friedman's table. All the guys from like Gomer Pyle and the Ed Sullivan Show and all these guys. Shelly Berman, I got his album right there on the wall. First album, they won a Grammy, spoken. And I and they're there and I'm losing my mind with, you know, what's going to happen. So I got like the fifth or sixth spot, sweet spot. The crowd is hot. And I'm like, this is it. This is your career. Your spot, dude. This is it. And right before I go on, Norm Crosby goes up and does the let's remember why we're here speech. 
<laughs> and I am, I am losing my shit. I'm having a panic attack in the hallway of the improv. And I just like, I was, you know, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And they go, ladies and gentlemen. And then they introduced me. And I don't know exactly what I said. But I, people asked me, because it worked. And people asked me, they go, you know what? I tell people I panicked correctly. I just leaned into the terror of the moment and said something. And it made sense to people. First time I learned about, dude, just speak. Speak to the, the emotion. And I said something, and they laughed, and I thought, oh, my God, I have them. In this moment of despair, so then I began my set. And it went really well. And I can see Bud Friedman clapping and I'm walking off and I'm like, what just happened to me? And after the show, I'm standing on the side of God, the improv and all the old school comedians, all the OGs that I watched on TV, they're all hanging out with me. They're telling me how funny I am, telling me how I got it. And I'm just like, I'm, I couldn't believe what happened to me. So I walk around the corner. I'm going home that night, you know, drive my Toyota Tercel stick shift. I go around the corner to get in my car, and uh, my car wasn't there. <laughs> and I said to myself, no, no freaking way, no way, nope. So I walk, I go, you know what? I retrace my steps to the improv. I go back in the door. They're like, hey, what's up, JP? And I go, no, no, I just, I've just got to make sure this actually happened. So I went, I walked to walk a second time, Dennis. I went out there, and I was like, son of a Bitch, they took my freaking car while I'm on stage thinking I made my career. So that was my that was my big moment and my low moment. So after that set, you know, Bud Friedman talks to my manager and I and and, um, you know, about getting spots. Maybe I should, you know, call in for spots. And um or he said, you should come around or contact us. So we reach out to him, right? A year goes by. We reach out. Nothing. Never heard from him again. I'm like, all right, welcome to Hollywood. So the next year, the Jerry Lewis telephone is again. And the casting people reach out to me. Hey, we'd like to see James come back and do it again. I'm like, let's do it again. This time they're taping in Hollywood. Same thing. This time, Jerry Lewis himself is hosting comedy night. I'm like, here we go. Be fine. So I get there right before the show. I break a toe. It's excruciating. It's black and blue. I can barely stand without, you know, visibly grimacing. And I wanted to tell, you know, I said, we need to tell them. And my manager's like, no, because they might replace you on the spot if they think you're not going to be able to perform. So I was walking with like a cane at the time just to have pressure off. And so I said, nope. She said, you just have to, you've got to go in there. Just fake it till you make it. You just got to not. I said, all right. So I went in there, walking in with a broken toes. And I'm just like, hey, two broken toes. And I'm just walking and I'm just grimacing. But you can feel the adrenaline kicking in. So I said, she just said, well, don't tell him. Don't talk about it. So we agreed not to talk about it. So I get introduced to Jerry Luce. Introduced me this time. And uh, so right before I go on. Same thing, man. Hot spot. Crowd's hot. This time I feel more confident. I've been here before. And right before I go on, Jerry Lewis is like, this next gentleman, this kid, right before the show, he broke his toes. And I'm like, how the hell did he do this? So he's going on and on. 
and he's trying to make it sincere, but it sounds ridiculous. This is the kind of kid he is. Break a toe and still go on with the show. The audience is starting to laugh, waiting for the punchline. There is no punchline. He introduces me, and I'm thinking, we're raising money for children who are going to die before the age of 21. And you are attempting to make me seem like some noble warrior with two freaking broken toes. So I walk up, I'm thinking, again, what the hell's going on? How do I save this moment? So I walk up, and I just decide, I go with my gut. I'm standing next to Jerry Lewis, for God's sakes. I'm just like, you know, I really gave it up hard for the legendary Jerry Lewis, right? And everyone's clapping, and you can see Jerry's kind of like digging the moment. So he turns and smiles to me, and he stayed there on stage. And we're just staring at each other. And I'm thinking to my... <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, get the fuck off the stage. That's it. That's all I wanted to do. I don't have anything else to say to you. And he's just standing in my moment. And again, I was like, ah! So I don't know exactly what I said, but I just went with it. Had a great set. Get off the stage. Same thing. Bud Friedman's there shaking my hand. Everybody's high-fiving me. And I get off. And Bud comes up to us uh, and says, James, why haven't you called? <laughs> And I was just like, I'd bite my tongue. Like, we called regularly, and we're blown off. So this, why would you call? So I was like, oh, well, you know, I think my manager. So then, like a week later, I'm sitting in my apartment in Santa Monica. You know, he's talking about, I think you'd be good for my Vegas club, and, you know, we should get you spots here. And But again, I'm like, you know what? I heard this last time. I just, I just, it felt good. This all felt good. But, you know, what are you going to do? My phone rings at home. I'm still, this is all new to me. And I get to go, hello, James, this is Bud Friedman. I had a fallout for 9.15 on Friday night. Do you want the spot? And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm like, yeah. I hang up the phone. I'm like, Bud Friedman just called me my house. Just gave me a 9.15 on a Friday. So I go down there and I'm stressed as hell. But still, it's like, come on, I got a weekend spot at the Improv. And he's in the room. I do my spot. Not an easy crowd, but I was happy with what I did for the show. And he came up to me afterwards. He goes, James, I think you do really well in my Vegas room. How many minutes can you do? And I said, 30. And he said to me, how many of them are good? <laughs> and I looked at him and I leaned in and I went, 30. <laughs> nice. And he smiled and nodded at me. And, and then I, that's how I started getting booked. Now... The good news is they put me in touch with this friend who was his booker, and they started booking me at the, the Improv in Vegas and the Improv in Tahoe and all those stuff. I, that's how I got into the pipeline of comedians with way better careers than me who were famous. Uh, the bad news is, like, Bud gave up controlling interest of the Improv like two weeks later. And so I never, I got into the Improv, I was passed by, I was the last comics passed by Bud Friedman at the Hollywood Improv. But then a few weeks later, he's not controlling the booking anymore, so... But he did control the booking for like the Vegas, uh, the Vegas and the Tahoe and all the satellite rooms at the time in the casinos. So I worked for Bud for years in the in improv casinos, uh, but I didn't get a lot of spots at the Hollywood Improv, despite the fact that I my cut my teeth, my t TV terror was in front of Jerry Lewis and Bud Friedman and Tom Poston and Shelley Berman and all these old school guys. And I ran into Norm Crosby years later at a at the like London Heathrow Airport, I recognize him with his wife, and and you know, and I've seen old school comedians at airports. I always go up to him, 
ran into Bob Newhart that way at Don Rickles. They go up to Norman. Like, I said, honor, sir. I, said, I just got to let you know, you, you know, you really, you almost crushed me in my first TV appearance. And I explained to him what happened. He laughed at me. He goes, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, I was, I said, I almost like that. That was, I almost died on the spot. <laughs> I almost folded right there. So, so that is how my career went from, um, working with the troop, getting a showcase spot, getting on TV in front of Bud, nothing happens for a year, come back and do it a second time. And then the second time, so that's why I tell comments, I go, the first time sounded like it should have guaranteed me moving up. It didn't give me anything except four or five calls to the improv and then they never returned my call. A year later, I did it again. And they acted as if nothing had happened. So you had to come back again. He saw it twice. This time it stuck. This time he did something about it. Then he was out of there three months, three three weeks later. But it moved me to the next level. It moved me into shows with comedians who you had sitcoms, comedians who I'd heard of, comedians who were famous, and they just doing favor, you know, favors for Bud Friedman. So that's how I started then populating a higher level with people that were better than me, had better careers than me, and could teach me things. And I was working gigs. So I got paid money, like money, money. You could live off money and, you know, encourage me to merchandise. I recorded my first CD at the Improv in Vegas um, so I could sell it. And so that for me was the catalyst to the next level. And then uh, from there, once I was circling at that level, then um, the Boston Comedy Festival started. And Vin DeBona, huge man, at the Boston Comedy Festival, and my managers at the time had worked with Vin DeBona on a show. So they were active in helping with the festival, and so they connected me with the Boston Comedy Festival. And um, I had just finished recording my first CD at the Improv in Vegas, and um, I did the Boston Comedy Festival, and Sonny Fox from XM Comedy was there. At the time, there was no series. It was just XM. And XM Comedy was one guy, Sonny Fox, OG Radio DJ, comedy man, loved comics. And so he was at the festival. This was what, 2002? This was, yeah, early 2000. And um, so Sonny saw me and loved me. And he said, do you have a CD? I'm like, yes, I do. So I gave him my CD, <laughs> and he played the crap out of it. So now I started getting all this airplay on Sirius. I mean, XM, XM Comedy. So now suddenly I'm getting pushed out to the masses. And then, um, then Sirius came about. And Sirius started seeing who XM was playing. So then Sirius reached out to me and asked me if I had a CD. So now I sent it to Sirius. So now XM and Sirius are playing. And then um, I had an opportunity to record another one. I did a set for a buddy, Don Friesen, right? Don was doing a, he wanted to record something at the Crest Theater in Sacramento. And he's like, you want to do a 40 minutes? intermission then I'll do my hour I'm like great he goes you want a tape like, you know what I'm good I just got a great tape at the Boston Comedy Festival I don't really care <laughs> so Don of course runs the camera anyway and I step out there and do a front to back 40 that's just like the best 40 I've ever done in my life in a theater so I get the tape I'm like oh my god this is like ev everything worked I got a great tape so I stripped the audio and we were going to give it to um, Sonny as a second CD. And he called me himself. He goes, listen, man. He goes, it's too echoey. He goes, we're XM. A lot of people listen to us in their cars. 
He said, I, I, I think you're doing yourself an injustice. I can't release this. And I thought, oh, my God, I, 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 got, I just did the perfect set. And Sonny, because the audio wasn't, it wasn't done for recording. It was just a videotape, right, with the audio. So that's when my managers were like, well, we need to record it now. And I was like, I, you know, stressing out about it. So we did a instant one day, one shot, small theater, got radio engineers from Clear Channel, one shot, knocked it out, recorded it. I went in the studio, eliminated all the one woman who laughed really weird. We edited her out <laughs> and uh, sent that off. He was like, this is fantastic. He gave it a showcase spotlight for a while, put it in rotation, and XM Sirius took it. And then my buddy was opening for the Blue Collar Comedy Tour, and he had a show. He played the crap out of it. And then Sirius XM merged. And so both of them got all my CDs. And then I think, you know, I heard that when they started the Blue Collar Comedy Radio, that, you know, Foxworthy and company wanted them to be clean. And he didn't like some of the stuff they're playing. So he basically told them to clean house. So they got rid of all the stuff that didn't meet the standards. And guess who had two CDs in the small pile that was left over? Me. So guess who got <laughs> tremendous airplay because they had no choice? Me. So suddenly my stuff is in massive rotation because it passed the standards of that channel. So that is how. And then from there... People hear you. They want to book you on corporate gigs. You're getting residual. So that's how it really spidered out for me. And then the the VH1 thing came about was because um, Ed McMahon was doing a Star Search reboot called Next Big Star. And Ooh. so I auditioned for that, got the audition, and then um, won my first round, won a couple rounds in Vegas. And Ed loved me because he was a Marine. We were chatting it up. And uh, one of the executive producers of that show was George Slaughter from Laugh-In, right? Guy created Laugh-In. And so I was on that show, and I was moving up the food chain, winning every week and moving on and working with this. And I was doing my character. It's kind of an odd cat. And so I get off one day, and I don't know who George Slaughter is time i thought he was the old guy with the headphones sitting behind the tv and i get off stage i, I just killed and won my night and i get off stage and i walk past him he looks at me and he goes what the hell was that what? and i stare at him and i go who the hell are you and he exploded laughing <laughs> and, and, and i walk by and my managers are like you just passed the test like that's he was pushing you, and you just pushed past, like, who the hell are you? So, because he explained to me, he goes, I saw you come out. I had, like, a green plaid jacket on. And he goes, he goes who is this delusional young man? He goes, this kid is going to bomb. His wife was, like, almost telling him, like, not to put me out there. And so it worked. And so, so that show did well. And there was a guy running, like, um, matter of fact, it ended up being me, and Al me against Alonzo Bowden for the uh, – the, the five round <laughs> That's how I met Alonzo. And uh, so there was a guy, a segment producer there for them, running the cameras and doing stuff. And, and I was getting along with him really well and just goofing around. And, and he ended up pitching a show to VH1. And he ended up getting the show. And then he brought me into audition. And I don't think the people at VH1 wanted me that much, but they let him make the call. <laughs> so that's how I got the show. 
And so, uh, so those are the big three things that spidered out for me. Um, you know, each one kind of came from existing in the other ecosystem every time you get somewhere. And then from there, you know, you get into the bigger clubs and then Comedy Magic Club saw me and then you get, you just kind of get out there. So that's kind of how for me, everything just kind of built on the thing I did before. And then after about 10 years, I would say 10 or 12 years, I just, I hit a roadblock with doing a character on comedy because it, it got me where I was, but people would hire me to host. And when they saw my standup, it was a disconnect. And people would see my standup and couldn't see that I could do anything else. And I thought, well, I need to be me. I want people to see me and go, that's a great standup comedian. And I bet he would make a great host too. So I ditched the character and I did it on the fly. This is the most brutal experience I've been through. Just suddenly not doing it, suddenly trying to only do jokes that I thought I could do that were me, writing a ton of new material. I'd call clubs and say, look, I don't want a headline. Can I just come through and feature twice a year instead under the radar? I need the stage time. So I'd go places and they would see me do this version of my act and they go, but Saturday night you're going to do your real act, right? No, <laughs> I didn't. So the good news is I was able to hold terrain. I didn't lose bookings because of it, but I had a couple questionable appearances where people were like, it's not what we paid for. And I go, it's, it's cooking in the oven, baby. It's cooking in the oven. <laughs> well, what, what was this character that you talked about? What, like, what was the... It was kind of an elevated idiot. It was just kind of a guy who thought he was an amazing at everything, but clearly wasn't, and dressed in a way that he thought looked fantastic, but clearly everything was just slightly off. But it was kind of my, you know, I would call it elevated stupidity. It's my, my sense of humor I describe as smart stupid. That's what I like to do. Uh, big fan of Mr. Steve Martin. I think he's right there. And so that's kind of what came out of me. You know, like I'd get on stage. One of my biggest jokes was I would claim to have this amazing power over women. And one of my big jokes at the time was when I make love to a woman and believe me, someday I will. <laughs> so it was like that type of, uh, you know, and all my stories were just insanely stupid Um we were like, so, but as a young man doing it, funny. Young guy wearing old school clothes, thinking that he's the bomb of, of cross, everything. Very funny. Aging into that character, creepy sad. I'm always conscious, like, this is going to be, and my manager and I, we talked to him, he's got about 10 years of this, and then you're going to be in his own where people are going to be like, is he serious? Because when you're young, you get it. So that's when I decided I need to fuse the two parts of me so that I'm just being me on stage. And so it was weird because then I had to learn how to be me. All my friends been doing it for like the same time. Fine. I'm like, so how do you do this? What do you, what do you talk about? <laughs> it's a weird thing going from like goofy character work yeah. to just earnest, earnestly being yourself. It is definitely a step uh, that some people have difficulty doing. And some people just naturally fall into themselves. Sometimes yeah. it's nice to be hidden behind the wall of that character. You know, you don't have to actually be yourself. It, it, yeah. The danger for me was that because I came across, if you got it and I did it right, you understood the joke and it was enjoyable. If I, when I was starting to do it, if I didn't do it right, I just came off like an arrogant, entitled white guy. People looked at me because I looked that way and they were just like, and when I bombed at this character, oh my God, did I bomb? Because if they don't buy who you are, <laughs> And you're just going to be paying off something that nobody buys for minute after minute. It, the worst bombs I've had as that character 
absolute agony. I mean, gut-wrenching agony. Bombing is me now cracks me up. The fact that I can be in that room and make people laugh, and yet, for some reason, it's not happening here. I mean, I hate it, but I'm still like, this is unbelievable to me. And that level of joy with my failure always helps me <laughs> in that moment. And I can empathize with the character being about when it bombs, it bombs, and when they love it, they love it. Because at Boston Duck Tours, we all think, yeah. think as characters. My character's a ukulele playing punk right. rocker who's, who's yeah. claimed the fame as I have the world record for longest musical tour to never sell a right. ticket. Like I'm playing up this very confident but sympathetically right. sad, tragic character. And if you want to be a part of that and that setting us, you're going to yep. love it. But if you don't, 80 miserable minutes. And you know what? Throughout the tour, the character goes away, yeah. and I come out to be mean. I'm doing my right, right, right. I'm doing my sense but of humor. But you got to circle back. You got to circle public. back. Yeah, and then every once in a while you come back, and you're like, hey, did you You guys thought I forgot about puns? You know, or the little music references there. But if you are on board with that at the start of that engine of that duck boat, then hey, you're going to have a good time. And it's not good for me either. But if you're just like, okay, we're going to get a, a show, and Look, the knowledge is there. The the history yeah. stuff is there. You're going to get that history stuff, and you're going to get a good couple jokes no. with it. You're going to get a couple of bad jokes. You're going to get a couple of bad jokes on purposely bad, and I'm going to be here to have fun. Well, you know what? And I felt for Charlie Chowderhead because when he started, I was just, I'm like, this is either I don't know. They're kind of like punish, and then but <laughs> once he crossed the threshold now where we were enjoying it and we look forward to it, whether the joke was good or not, that's what I'm saying to myself. See, he did it. He just made this. Okay for everybody. And there's a couple great jokes in there. That I looked at my son and I go, that is really funny. And I'm like, I'm happy there's a couple moments I was like, yeah, really fun. So, yeah, I think um, I really shine when I'm doing, when we're on the river and I'm doing the kids because it's all yeah. crowd work. And that is where the people are like, oh, this is where he really is. This yeah. is the real guy making yeah. jokes, not the, the killer stuff. Which, by the way, I do want to point out, um, you, I'm going to say you're welcome for the Sirius XM because do you know who launched, the, who was the producer for that uh, blue-collar comedy channel that, on the launch no. of it? Yeah. Me. I was the engineer that launched that. We launched the blue-collar comedy channel for Sirius XM backstage of the filming of the uh, blue-collar comedy tour in Washington, Well, DC. I will thank you because the biggest shock of my life was that I'm getting airplay on the blue-collar comedy show, blue-collar comedy radio. When they told me that I'm one of the most requested, they did a poll, and at one point I was the most requested comedy CD on Sirius XM, and Blue Collar Comedy Radio approached me. I did a special for them in Nashville at the Sirius stage there, and I was like, are you sure? Because I'm not. And they go, no, no, because you're, you're likable, and everybody enjoys your act, and the jokes are there, and I was like, okay. So I was like, I was like Blue, really, Blue Collar Comedy, I'm a known commodity in that circle. So I thank you. I thank everyone who listened to me and put that stuff out there because I was like, you can't so you can't go, here's my career arc. This is what I see. So when I hear comics tightly plan, I go, I'm a much more zen, mindful man. I believe, you know, you need to step into the next moment, be present, and then watch what's happening too because there's going to be some doors open and some things happening that you can't script. Like going into corporate stuff. I didn't say to myself, you know, I need to be a corporate comedian because that's where the money is. Never, never came out of my mouth. I was starting in L.A., living in Santa Monica, and I had lunch with a buddy of mine, college buddy. We're just catching up with each other. 
You know, I'm doing stand-up comedy. He was an account executive for a company called Jack Morton Worldwide. Never heard of him. He said, well, they're a corporate entertainment company, the biggest one in the world. He said, you know, we hire talent all the time. We just have to, we can submit these reports and say, we found some talent. We think you should look at them. So he just sent in a report saying that he found me, thought they should look at me, did not disclose that we knew each other. So, uh, <laughs> so then. Oh, he found you years ago. He found college. me drunk under his bed in the dorm. <laughs> he found me face down by the Charles River one night. And uh, so he sends a report into them. And then their San Francisco office um, reached out to me to audition for a trade show. So I went and I did it and I got the gig. After I got the gig, we both went and go, just we explained that we knew each other. But I got the gig on my own merit, which was great. So then I did this trade show for them. And then from there, we got to know each other. And then they thought, you know, you may be really great hosting these events because I had done some hosting for this mobile disc jockey company uh, before. They had me host this gig like as a Max Headroom style character, but I could live interact with the crowd. And I was really good. That's where I excelled because I'm quick off my quick off the top of my head, handle it. And so I did that for a couple of times. And then, uh, then a company hired me and said, well, could you host it as yourself? And I'd never been asked to host before as myself. So I did that. So I had some videotape of me in a tuxedo hosting an awards banquet. So I was able to. So then the San Francisco office started pitching me for gigs. And then Jack Morton has a national talent register. And so the national talent register found me. And I became a low price point host. If you didn't have a big budget, this guy's really good. and He can do the job for you. So I slotted in, you know, but still low corporate money is good. So that grew simultaneously with my stand-up career. I was growing this corporate hosting arm while I was becoming a stand-up. So it all just happened organically. And then, uh, and I still do both because, you know, pays good. It's fun. You know. Well, I don't think of you as a clean comic, but I, I know you're not a right. comic. I think that's a great way to just, yes, comedy? that's a great description to me. Yeah, I'm not think- a... Was that always like the the road? Like, were you consciously aware of it, or was that just naturally you were cl- not? Doing I am it? naturally leaning toward a cleaner side because I think I'm just conscious of everyone. I want to include everyone when I talk. I want everyone to understand me. Um, but I will swear as needed, and I will write the joke <laughs> as needed. But I always like to find. I'm a wordsmith. I prefer to find words that will get everybody in. I like to say it without saying it, or create a way. That you know what I'm talking about, but I, so I would never describe myself as clean, but I can easily work a clean show because um, I'm very conscious of my surroundings. But I think your description is great. I'm not clean, but I'm not dirty either. I lean towards the cleaner side because that's how I write. I write with the idea that I can have all this um, be played to the widest possible audience. But I just write what I think, and I take it on say sometimes the, the initial version of it is pretty, you know, raw. And then I go, well, what if I said it this way instead, still make the same point, and I get more people on board? So that's how some rewrites happen. See, and that goes back to me talking about how your self-awareness, because there's so many comedians who would never have gotten the opportunities that you earned on your own because their material mm-hmm. isn't for that broad of an audience or because they don't want to be part of that yeah. broad audience. So they shun that stuff or they sl- get the door slammed. They slam the doors in yeah. their own faces 
No, they're cutting their noses despite their faces to use it all. There's a lot of cliches you dropped in that set. There's a lot of cliche, a lot of doors <laughs> slamming and noses being cut. And, you know, just give me a, we know at the end of the day, what we got to do is, I, you know, from. Just get rid of noses. I, people ask me, I, it's the way I was raised. It's Marine Corps experience, understanding the restrictions of the world I'm in and trying to find the freedom inside of it. So if you. I look around, I read this, I read the room well, and I don't just, you know, I still do me. But if someone said, to me, it's like this. If I walk into a room, it's my, I call it the MacGyver approach. If you walk into a room and I go, you know what I need here? I need a drill. I need a hammer. I need a screwdriver and I need a chainsaw. They go, well, guess what you have? A fork, a knife, a spoon, and duct tape. And I'm like, game on. (laughs) To me... Just then you lean into it. You don't go, oh, well, I'm really a screwdriver comedian. I go, well, you got duct tape. So my attitude is work with the tools you have and surprise yourself. And, and, and you know, and then you're going to push yourself creatively. And also um, you'd be surprised what you can get away with sometimes. I've been told you can't do this. And I do it immediately to relax myself. I've done shows where, you know, corporate show, tons of people. And they say, whatever you do, don't, don't, do not talk to the president. Do not talk to him. He, we do not want him to be made fun of. And I go, well, did that come from him? Well, we just, and so I walk in the room and he's smiling and sitting there. And, and I just didn't want to deal with it. So I just said, so as, as I understand the president of the company's here. And he just looked at me and he raised his hand. And I went, huh, thought you'd be taller. <laughs> and place went nuts. He went nuts. And I left him alone, but I'm like, you can't put that in front of me. And not have me address something. So, you gotta say something. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, uh, yeah, it, addressing the awkwardness in the room. It's my awkwardness. It was, wins you it over. My, yeah. Like, yeah, it's a need. Yeah. They were fine. I'm just like, ah. My favorite was I did, I did a show once ever, and it was an Indian president of Hugh, Mr. Ratan Tata, one of the five most powerful, wealthy men in the world. It's like a god in India. And I was doing the show for an Indian company, but it was here in America. It's the Hotel Dell. And um, he was going to be there for the first time. And, and the Indian, Indian, everyone was like, Mr. Tata was, was nervous. It's, like, what's, what, it's the bomb. And why? And they were like, well, the Indian culture, this very hierarchy. And this guy's like untouchable. So he's in the front row. And I'm looking at him. And, you know, I walk in the room. And again, the, you know, they, Mr. Tata, blah, blah, blah. I walk in. And I said, well, Mr. Tata, it's good to see you. And I said, you know what? You look like the Indian most interesting man in the world to me. And <laughs> absolute silence. And the executives behind him were just staring. And then Mr. Tata was like, bah! and he laughs. And then the executives laughed. And then I did five minutes on what cowards they were, that they waited for Mr. Tata to laugh. And then the Americans laughed. So we had this great moment. And so later that night, Afterwards, they had this cocktail reception, and I'm hanging out with the production crew, and I go to get a drink at the bar, and some guy comes up to me and goes, Mr. Tata would love to speak with you. And I look over, Mr. Tata's by himself at a table. No one's around him. His handler brought me over. We sat down. We just we had a nice chat. Great guy. Um, I walk back to the table, the production company. Everybody's like, and I walk down. I go, did you just see what happened? Did you just see that Mr. Tata personally invited me over to his table? And I look at him and I go, I'm pretty confident I could have you all killed right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I'm in with the man. I said, I understand the way this works. You're all dead. Everybody's dead to me. So 
<laughs> so we are pandemic friends. Yeah. As I like to put it, I you know get to meet a lot of my. Uh, I've met a lot of my pandemic comedy friends in person. We still have yet to confirm visually true. in person that we both yep. have legs. Uh, hopefully, this winter when I'm back in yeah. LA, we'll be able to hang out. But for you, transitioning from like, by the way, I want to commend you for diving into Zoom comedy. And we talked about it earlier. And uh, I want to commend you for being a person. I that want was like, all I in because so many people. Dude, my buddy and I, Don Freeze yeah. and I talked about it. The minute it happened, we go, "This is a permanent shift. We need to go all in." We talked about buying. Uh, you know, I got an HD camera. I, I got the light here. I got the USB microphone. I got the pop-up green screen. I went all in. My first Zoom show was ridiculous. I was doing characters and pulling props, and it was just a cacophony of crap. <laughs> and, and until I realized what I do best is I just stare into the camera and do it. I'm, people always said to me during Zoom, the number one compliment was, I re- you really come through the camera you really made it enjoyable. But my first one was so bad. <laughs> I was just like, I'm a pro. I have a career. I had, I had a lab coat. I was did I did I did so much weird stuff. And Friesen was even worried. He was frenetically doing like a one-man Sid Caesar. And it was just we look back now, we go, yeah, it's a bit much. A bit much. We thought we had to be like, Uncle Milty, TV's been born. And that's yeah, pretty crazy. Yeah, all I did to prep my podcast studio into a Zoom comedy studio is I took my desk that faced that way and I turned it here. So all the cool shit that I used to look at to inspire me is now behind me. So everyone's like, But oh, you that's see, that's the thing, thing is what you did was simple and it cre- it gave you instant credibility. Because when I saw you, I don't know who this guy is, but clearly he's done this before. Before you even open your mouth and I realized that you didn't know what you were doing. Ah, uh, no kidding. Yeah. I spent 20 right, years so, in radio talking to, making jokes to people in a room by right, myself. so I look at you. And it no looked, difference. And said, this guy knows what he's doing. So I was like, I need to frame the shot. I had stuff on the wall. I had you know, lights. I made sure that, so I went all in. Because, and then people paid me. People were like, hey, can you, we have these Zoom meetings. Can you, can you show up at the end to do 15 minutes for, or 10 minutes for 300 bucks? I'm like, yes, I can. And I do it. And look at my son, I go, Daddy made some money today, baby. And then you get paid and you're just like, you know, it became, it's how I survived too with unemployment and, and making some money coming in. But the fact that I could do it in my living room was crazy. It's just crazy. And I miss those days a little bit, but I'm glad to be back in person. But I will say for me, and I'm curious if you had this, this problem, I actually had a little bit of a trouble retransitioning back into person because mm-hmm. I got so used to this environment, you know, that going back in front of people there, I, I was offset. I wasn't yeah. as present with my material. I'm doing the same material that I wrote through mm-hmm. the pandemic or before the pandemic, but there was so much matter of being back mm-hmm. in my head of trying to remember the material and not being present at the moment where the fear was at. Did you have any problems going back, transitioning back into uh, in-person comedy? Um, I wouldn't call them problems, but I definitely, definitely had an adjustment period. I realized that some of the jokes that sounded like they killed on Zoom was because, you know, if you're doing a show for 200 people and four people lose their shit laughing, it fills your ear with laughter and the rhythm. And then I would do them live and realize, oh, that line, it's not that good. Or this bit needs more. So there's what I learned was that the material that I wrote during the pandemic was not translatable to live. I had to zhuzh it up a little bit. I had to get rid of some things that I thought worked. I had to 
add some stuff. Some concepts maybe resonated more on a Zoom show, but at a live show, not so much. So that part was like, oh, okay. But um, getting back live, I mean, I, you know, just felt good. A couple shows I felt back in rhythm. I didn't have to wait several seconds. Zoom shows helped me, though. It slowed me down on stage because I had to slow down for the Zoom echo. Oh. And I took that on stage and I go, I am more paced. It's a better show. I'm taking my time. I notoriously go too fast when I get excited. And so the Zoom reminded me to just rock it back so you don't overstep on the lap. And I use that, take that live and help me with my rhythm. A and now what is current post pandemic? I mean, we're yeah. three years past the pandemic, you know, LA's reopened. What's comedy like? Is there a change between JP Connolly's comedy now and prior to the pandemic? Is there a difference in the career? Uh, well, I'm way more open. I think the material I'm writing is way more me. I had I wrote in the pandemic because I was going through a divorce and I was getting sober. So my material was way more raw. And I think I've maintained that, which is good. I went to show somewhere and somebody came out to me and said, you know what? I really love your material. This is way more you. And I'm like, then I'm doing it right. So I love the version of me out of the pandemic. Um, you know, the career is, I had, I guess I'm at a place now where I got to make some choices about what's important to me, what I think I can do at my age and my disposition in, in, the, in the comedy community. You know, no one is clamoring for a 57-year-old comedian who's got some skills, but I'm not hot, popular, don't have the large following. So I have to make some just choices of how I'm going to do this going forward. But, you know, the good news is that bookings come and people still want a comic who can deliver. And I still love doing it. And uh, I remember when I got to L.A., I met comics in their 50s who were bitter at open mics. And I was like, if that's me, man, someone just put me out of my misery. So I'm happy to say that I've never enjoyed it more than I do now. I've never enjoyed writing more than I do now. I never enjoyed the detail that I put into it more than I do now. So... The downside is, you know, the clubs are not going to be as... I still have connection to enough clubs to keep me going. And uh, I just want to find the next layer to add. My career's always had levels and layers. I'm just looking for the next one right now. Uh, just something to make me excited, too. But I still love doing it. I still love getting the call. still love hosting because there's all the new material. Write stuff. I love, I love corporate hosting because they trust me. And I have budgets. I have ideas. I was trying to bring a live hawk. And they're like... <laughs> and, and you know, you know what? Still going back. Do to you the know? Club. Do you know what their reaction to me was? Well, let's make some calls. And I'm like, I can't do this in a comedy club. I pitched the idea of a hawk terrorizing the audience, and they looked at me. They go, Well, let's make some calls. And I go, This is why I love the corporate gigs because when you've done it by the third year in, they're just like, James, do what you do. And I go, I got an idea. <laughs> and so you know, it's chainsaws and hawks, and they listen to me. And I pitched the idea. And the fact that they're looking at me like, well, that's actually kind of funny. I'm like, come on, guys. Sign a liability waiver. So uh, so that brings me joy. I'm still trying to get the live hawk for this next year. They're booking me next year. And I'm, I'm going to come back and go, we didn't do it last time. Hear me out. Falcon Terror. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've made friends with the I'm Falconer. Like, He'll do it for I think call. I can do it myself. Just give me the Falcon. I just... Pay for the glove. I'll bring the, my own. Somebody, I remember pitching the story and someone's like, well, we're afraid that someone might be really scared. I'm like, that's the beauty of it is that 80% are laughing, 15% scared, five terrified out of their mind. And, 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 and they go, and they say, well, what if it poops? I go, unforgettable moment. 
That's called good luck, I'm just like, remember? I, as a comedian, I'm going, it would make my day if that Falcon dropped a bomb on a high-end dinner. I would be like, the greatest day of my life. So I don't see the problems they see. I don't see the problems they see. <laughs> and now with doing yeah. comedy and being a Marine, I've been wondering this whole time, have you actually ever done a USO tour? You know, I was fortunate that at the Boston Comedy Festival, uh, somebody approached me who was there, and he was booking the tours. And I got to do tons of them overseas during the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Uh, been to Iraq several times, Afghanistan several times, been to Kosovo and Bosnia Herzegovina, European tours. Um, so yeah, I do. I've done a lot. It meant a lot to me. First time I went back, I did a show, landed in Kuwait, and I had been in Kuwait since Desert Storm, and just flying to Kuwait, I was just anxiety ridden. I mean, last time I was there, uh, so I remember I landed in the Kuwait airport, and I'm going through security with the other comics, and they're checking everybody's, you know, and they ask. One by one, they're asking us, is this your first time in Kuwait? Is this your first time in Kuwait? And they get to me, and I said, uh, is this your first time in Kuwait? And then I said, for non-liberation purposes, yes. <laughs> and, and the tour manager looked at me, and I'm like, yes, this is my first time in Kuwait. So so it's really, it, for me, it's great because, you know, the shows are fun, but for me, it really is about being able to talk to the men and women afterwards and let them know that, dude, I walked in your shoes. I've been in your boots. I've been in this place before. I understand what you're going through. So the comedy's fun, but it was just, and you know, I never thought I'd get to spend time again in that environment and, and not have to be manly. <laughs> it's kind of nice to like trip over your back and go, I'm a comic. It's fine. It's fine. It's, <laughs> nobody, nobody's looking at me to go pick up a gun. No, 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 I'm fine. So. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been great yeah, catching man. up, James. And it's nice. That's one of the things about the pandemic uh, that I made friends with, with people is like, and now, you went through a real war, and I'm not going to try and like no. diminish that. But when I say what I'm about to say is like, us comedians who really dived into the Zoom comedy during the pandemic, like we went yeah. through something. Yeah. Like when I meet other comedians finding you face to face, it's like we know each other. We truly know yeah. each other, you know. But we don't know our stories. We don't know where no. we started. We don't know, like you said earlier, the no. origin story. But we know each other. Yeah. We have that familiarity, and it's lovely hearing where you started and how you got from just a, a kid in San Diego, you know, to being the comedian you are today and in the between going to war and, and like, w- excuse me, what we're going where? <laughs> you know, and then, yeah. You I'm not, a, I'm not a psychic. It's not our problem. We're good to go guys. Yeah. That's I've been wrong on a few things in my life. That was one of them. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that we got to catch up on this time there. Uh, and hopefully when I'm in LA this winter, uh, during, uh, the off season for Boston duck tours, We'll get to hang out, have lunch, and uh, hang out on, on the beach together. Yeah, and if I come out to uh, Boston at least once a year, I host a show for my buddy at Harvard every year. So uh, if I'm out duck tour way, this time I'll find you. No offense, Charlie Chowderhead. I'll find the punk rock ukulele playing guys. <laughs> awesome. This is great, James. Hi, man.